0: Welcome to Episode 7 of the Beyond Electurn Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge.
1: And I'm Rachel Siston
0: In this episode, we talk to Paul White. Paul is the Associate Dean of Education in Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University.
1: We had a really refreshing conversation about active learning, so I hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: Okay, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what would be good to um, hear from you to start up is you've been doing some work in active learning. Um, so... From from your perspective, how did you get involved in this work? What brought you to this idea of active learning as being an important thing to to have a look at and to, to do some work around?
2: Yeah, look, it's, uh, it goes back a while now. So I think around, say, 2007, there were a group of us at uh, Monash's pharmacy faculty. So we're in, in Royal Parade. We're the smallest campus of, of Monash University. Uh, we were a frustrated group. We were a group of people who were doing active learning, we had a sense of the pedagogy and the evidence behind it, and we were seeing the classes where it was working really well, but we were frustrated because we were a small pocket within the faculty, which was largely uh, made up of academics that were teaching traditionally. And some of those traditional lectures were great, but we knew that there were big limitations with lectures generally, and we knew what we were doing was working well, so we were frustrated. Luckily for us, uh, we had a change of dean. So our previous dean was a great dean, but our new dean, Bill Charman, uh, to his credit, gave a few of us the chance to, to lead in our faculty. And we picked active learning as the kind of construct to, to lead that change. So it, it was really a, a way to capture people's uh, perceptions of what teaching is about, and to change how they teach using that.
0: It's it's kind of interesting because I guess over the last sort of five years in particular, we've seen this real sort of backlash against lectures as a way of you know delivering content. Um, so it'd be interesting to sort of get a little bit further into some of the really um, problematic things that we're seeing in lectures. So you said that that was one of the things that sort of came out of it. I think we know sort of the the, the high level things in the. I mean, realistically, what you're talking about, if it's an old school lecture, is just one person essentially broadcasting to a group of students who don't get a lot of of opportunity for for interaction. Is that the kind of thing that you were thinking of when you were thinking of why the lectures were ineffective? Were there other things that were coming out of that, do you think?
2: Yeah, look, my perception of it now is a bit different to then, I think, so it's hard to think back exactly. But we knew that students got bored in lectures, and now we have a lot of data, actually. So we're quantitative people. We love numbers. So we've, we've measured student heart rates, uh, and this has been done before. There's a famous uh, learning teaching book that, that has that, but we, we did a lot of measuring student heart rates as a proxy for their engagement, and the start of the lecture, the heart rate bumps up a bit because you're sitting down with new people, but routinely in a didactic lecture, it falls to a kind of uh, you know, uh, sleeping level heart rate, you know, resting level heart rate. <laughs> And that's an, that's an indicator of what's happening cognitively. You know, it's passive experience. Students kind of like that in some ways, but really there's not much learning. We know the evidence is that, you know, after 30 minutes, you know, the cognitive load is high, the language is an issue, so students have heard a term they didn't understand. And so for the next five minutes, they're not thinking about what you're saying. They're thinking about that term and trying to place it into their conceptual framework. Um, so lectures, you know, they get boring. Even, even the most engaging people become boring after speaking for 30 minutes uh, or 50 minutes, even worse. Uh, the same students, the same handful of students in a large lecture tend to be the ones interacting. So people will say it was a great interactive lecture. It was great for five. And for 195, it was a completely passive experience. Yeah. So I think it was a combination of the lived human experience and the data Yep. that said to us, there's got to be a better way and there's got to be a better way beyond the usual suspects.
1: The flatlining so, heart rate is a fairly compelling data, I have to say.
0: <laughs> Reminds um, me of another study where I, I remember reading where they where they put EEG caps onto right. during a lecture and they found that after a period of time, they went into that delta wave, which made it look like <laughs> they were asleep too. So, yeah, that is yes. pretty compelling.
1: Can you give us a sense of, you mentioned that that you were working on some things that seem to be working, um, and that they align quite well with this active learning approach. Can you give us a sense of what those things are, what they look like in a classroom?
2: Yeah. So the entry level for us was clickers. Yeah. And clickers have some great strengths and some great weaknesses, but for us getting into it was really stopping the class, making everybody in the class, not some small subgroup, but everybody in the class have a go, at an activity that got them to apply their, their understanding in a new situation. So we really tried to use clickers not just to say, can you remember what we told you? Uh, but to say, here's the concept, concept of how blood pressure is regulated. Now take this patient with this particular disease state. Can you, know, can you interpret using your understanding of the principles? Can you interpret what's going on in this scenario? Yeah. So clickers are a nice entry level mechanism. And they can go badly wrong. There's nothing worse for a student than 10 clicker questions asking them mm-hmm. to recall things that they already know. Really boring and, in fact, maybe worse than an engaging lecture.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but clickers were good. And then we started to do this whole range. You know, We were kind of like kids in a lolly shop because we saw in the literature You know, think-pair-share, concept mapping, something I love, uh, scenarios, really scenario-based learning. Pharmacy education is our context, Uh, and for pharmacy and for pharmaceutical science students, it really is key that they have a body of knowledge, of deep knowledge, but that that by itself is is not good enough. We need them to be able to to apply that and to be able to reflect on what they know and have strategies. You know, one of the things we know now about expert pharmacists, pharmacists who are really good, is that they have this inbuilt schema in their head They know that when they're listening to a patient, they're listening for cues and they're making sure that they respond appropriately. They are processing the cognitive parts, which drug is best for this patient. They're doing all of these things at once. Students find that really difficult. So what we're trying to do is devise activities where they start with one of those elements, maybe just the communication bit or the listening bit or the processing bit, and we build to more and more complicated scenarios in the class, you know that's really the gist of what we're trying to work towards. Yeah. But there's a hundred methods, some of which we've failed dismally at, yeah. and others that have worked really well.
1: Yeah, can we, to break that down a little bit more, can we uh, do do your pharmaceutical pharmaceutical students learn the schemas first? And then learn how to apply those to uh, you know particular cases in particular patients or is it the other way around or is it you know a little bit more complicated than that you learn a little bit of you know a, a basic schema uh, and then apply it to a few cases and then you elaborate on that schema a little bit more or how do those two things uh, interact?
2: That's a really insightful question. I don't think we have the answer yet. We, we don't have the evidence to really support one way or the other. We have tried say so problem solving schema in a couple of different units in our courses, and that has worked well. We've got some evidence that that works in that context. I'm not sure how much a schema of problem solving in pharmacology cases even translates to medicinal chemistry within our discipline, let alone you know history or some other completely separate discipline. We, we like the idea of presenting a schema But I think there's something in the notion that students and and practitioners really mould it to make it their own. So I think it's good to give them a schema and say, look, you'll need to develop your own method. And if you look at expert practice and we try and give them placements where they see expert practice, you can't jump straight to that. So you've got to gradually build your schema Ideally, we give them a good one to start with so they've got something to work with, but they will mould it and they will use their own special source
1: yeah. in, in that yeah, schema. Absolutely. And can we, do you have a bite-sized example of what a schema could look like in pharmaceutical science um, that we can talk about?
2: Yeah, sure. So we, we've done the basic sciences problem-solving schema. Yeah. So we've got a couple of those. And they generally, uh, we've got a diagram and we've got an acronym um, that, that one of our academics, Elizabeth Yuryev, uses Goldilocks, she's got a, well, it's not an acronym, but a, um, an approach that has essentially uh, making sure that the person understands the problem, understands the words, defines what they know, defines what they don't know, yeah. and then finds a pathway between what they know and what they don't know. It's a pretty simple schema based on a lot of literature yeah. problem solving schemas. So that's one that we use. There's another one where we have got um, a number of clinicians to say what they do, what their process uh, cycle is when they see a patient. And it's a similar thing. It's gathering information about the patient, hearing their story, finding out what their key issues are, then narrowing down to what the clinical decisions that they need to make are, then proceeding through to executing those yep. clinical decisions and working with the patient. Yeah. So that's...
1: is that. Yeah, that definitely. So it's almost procedural in, in, in some sense, uh, or at least that process that you're describing. So going through step by step um, uh, in, in, when they're encountering a new patient, how they might go about reaching a decision at the end of the day.
2: It is procedural, and it seems clunky, I think, at first. Yep. But I think students really like it because they get all this different information about the communication and about the thinking they have to do, all these different elements, and they don't know where to start. So they they show inappropriate behaviours by jumping to, you know, level five when they haven't said, how are you and nice to meet you, my name is Paul. Uh, So I think it gives them a structure that they can work through and that helps them relax a bit and try to – and be more natural and, you know – eventually they're going to move way beyond having that schema and and they might realise as a practitioner that level five is where I can jump into with this patient because I know them and I don't have to introduce myself. Uh, but But it does help, I think.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned a little bit back was that you tried a number of different approaches and some of them didn't work out very well. So one of the things we often find when we talk to, to people who are in these sorts of situations that we find ourselves in higher education is that there is sometimes a reluctance to try these things because they will sometimes fall down. So how did you, how did you manage that? You know, how did you manage that process of saying, okay, we're gonna try some new and different things here. What did you have in place in case it all went a bit pear-shaped? Was there something systematic there or did you just need to think about ways of adapting on the fly or, or what, what was the process? So I think we, we did have some strategy for
2: that. We spent a lot of time before implementing uh, the change across first year. So we had a pilot stage and then we said in 2013, all of our first year units were gonna change this approach where there was routinely preparation for classes and routinely active classes. And in the pilot stage and the early implementation, we had a lot of workshops where we shared practice And we tried to do two things. I think we tried to really show the positive experience of when it does work. Mm. You know, try and give... And we had recordings that we shared because we record our lectures. Recordings where you could, you know, hear the hum in the room. And it's even better in person. It's much better when you're sitting in the class and you can just hear the conversation, not only the hum, but also the the depth of the conversations. They're going past what does this word mean and what is this concept to, wow, you know... In in this example, I would try this approach, and that, you know, here's the pros and cons. So they start to get into a reflective kind of mode. So showing the good examples, I think, was really important, but also saying upfront, some of this is going to fail. And I think it helped that some of our key leaders, you know, were brave enough to say, hey, I tried this, it didn't work. Here's why. For example, you know, the classic mistake with active learning is that you ask students to do a task. And you give them five minutes, because we tried to say to our staff, give clear instructions about the nature of the task, the time, and the learning goals. And often what fails is people say, five minutes, I'm going to give you five minutes. And they give them a really deep, deep, rich problem that needs 20 minutes. And after five minutes, the students are absolutely in a flow state. They're learning, they're going great. And then the person says, stop now, and -hmm. we're going to go on to an activity that they think is boring. Straight away, you know, you've lost the class and, and you have that change in momentum. I think there is real momentum in classes. Mm. So I think, going back to your question, we, we tried to share really good examples of success, but also say it's safe to fail. And I think the student evaluations is a key issue here because when you innovate in teaching, as, as you well know, there's the risk of bobbing out. And one of the ways we measure success in, in teaching is... Uh, you know, your student evaluations so we had to say to people look if your student evaluations go down a bit when you innovate in the first instance A, we won't, we're not, no one's going to hit you on the head for that and B expect that they'll jump up to higher than where they were in the longer term and we've yeah. seen that play out
0: yeah, which is a pretty standard thing. I think if you look a lot, I remember reading about this idea of a J-curve where you try a lot of different innovative things and what you find is a drop off on all sorts of different measures that um, you see because it takes a little while to bed these things down. And I think the example that you talked about where you, you've got this highly structured situation where you say to students, you've got X number of minutes to to solve this quite complex problem is a really good example of how you need to be a little bit flexible in terms of how these things play out which I guess can be a little bit tricky for for new teachers who don't necessarily have the confidence or the experience to know... exactly how much time it might take for students to be able to work through a, a particular complex problem like that. So that's always something that struck me that has been quite a, a difficult balance between that, that need to make sure that you know the students understand why it is they're doing what they're doing and can get the most out of it, um, but also having enough flexibility on our side to be able to implement these things in ways that um, allow them to work despite not knowing how it might play out in advance. It's, um, it's quite a tricky thing to balance, I reckon.
2: It is a tricky thing to balance, and you're absolutely right. I mean, students hate a disorganized class, and for good reason.
1: Mm.
2: One of the tricks is to have an organized class with exactly as you say, Jason, the flexibility uh, to, to change tack where needed. One of the elements of becoming a, a great active learning practitioner is to get the cues, to pick up on the right cues that say, This is a great exercise, keep going. Or uh, this is a great exercise, but now you need to throw in another element to really turn it around for the students. You know, we've seen this patient, but what about if the patient was this one? Uh, those, those are kind of, some of the things that an expert practitioner does, and it, you know, you don't get that training as, a, as an academic, I don't think you get the training in instructional design and changing on the fly in your classroom. Yep. So it's something we're trying to share.
1: I think what you're describing almost almost is teaching expertise you know you you need to be able to pick up when the the class is bored um, and when to change tact and that I think there is a level of expertise to that. I wanted to pick up though on something you mentioned earlier about student evaluations being a a key indicator of student learning and also um, about the challenge of of students being bored and disinterested, and we know that often uh, students' uh, boredom or students how students think they learn is not necessarily mapping on with how they're actually learn, learning. And so, how do how have you navigated that?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So when we started, we surveyed our students the, the first uh, in, in the pilot period, yeah. and we said we, we asked them to respond to the statement: "I learn better in traditional lectures than with active learning." And the first time, uh, I think it was 70%, or the majority, clear majority, said they learned better in traditional lectures. Even though they'd also told us that they learned skills in active learning, that their peer conversations are useful, that they valued um, the understanding, but also the problem-solving that they did. So they said all these good things and things we were yeah. looking to hear, but when it came to, I learn better, they said traditional lectures were better. And We thought they'd misinterpreted the question or something. Yeah. But what we found when we asked them was they were used to a learning style where they were told what's what. There was a you know um, movement of knowledge, you know transfer of knowledge from the instructor to the student. Yeah. The student then displays that knowledge in an exam. They knew that model. They trusted that model, and they didn't really trust us in this new model to evaluate them any differently, to to assess them any differently. Uh, so we over time that proportion of students that said they learned better in traditional lectures flipped. So in the end, by 2014, we had 70, 80% said that they learned better in active learning. And it comes back to your question about, to about student surveys, because we, we still get, don't get me wrong, we still get the occasional long long rant, can <laughs> I say, you know, well thought, but, but really saying you need to teach us, you need to tell us what, what, what's what. We get now a lot of students though that say we love the active learning, and it's really comes down to the nature of the task. Yeah. There's active learning, and then there's really good active learning, yeah. and you can bore students to death with tasks that aren't in the zone of proximal development, yeah. that aren't in the goal, you know, in the, uh, the, the the area where you know it's challenging enough for them to be interesting and, and useful, but not so hard that they can't do it. Yeah. But also, it's going to be fun, you know, and there's, another, there's a whole you know, area of sort of gaming and challenging students in, in ways to, to make them emotionally engaged as well as cognitively engaged. So I, I think what we see in our surveys is that, you know, people who can tell a great story are always going to get good teaching evaluations almost no matter what you, what you do. And people often learn by storytelling. So it's, it's trying to get this mix of um, organisation of active learning, so the students are actually building, testing, refining their understanding and their application, but also fun, challenging the classroom, you know, contests, safe environment, all, all that sort of stuff, and that's a lot of things to get right. Yeah. The good thing is that students are pretty forgiving and, and if they feel like that the academic is invested, and I've heard this a lot in our focus group conversations, if they feel like the academics having a go and really trying, they will generally be pretty forgiving. Uh, it's, it's only when they feel that they I, I think that there's perhaps an academic who's, who's not invested or um, really has some, you know, there's some interpersonal issue where they kind of get stuck into you in the, the surveys.
1: So it sounds like we can have our cake and eat it too, in, in as far as keeping students interested as well as improving their learning or making sure that they're learning as much as they possibly can. Just putting a little bit more thought into uh, making those active learning strategies uh, more interesting and relevant to students. Yes. Uh, so what are some of the ways that you go, go about doing that? What, is that? what does that look like?
2: Yeah, in large classes, I think it's different to in smaller classes. And I think we're trying to move as much as possible to having uh, you know, groups of 20 or 30, mm-hmm. even if it is a group of 200 that you're dividing up. In the large classes, I think you do have to be very organised and you have to be very conscious of the range of capabilities, the range of preparedness, the range of engagement in the room. So shorter activities, building up to more complex activities, I think is good. And that way, if you see that they're progressing to the next level, then you can challenge them further. You can add extra elements to, to the task um, but short, sharp tasks that have, that have sometimes a closed problem where there's a single right answer yep. and sometimes an open problem where it's a really the problem is a gateway to the discussion about the key concepts in that area. So, so a patient with heart failure, you might present a particular type of heart failure and you want them to solve that problem and come up with the right drugs and the right uh, approach but really it's about saying what is heart failure at a very deep level in a condensed way so that the students who are well prepared don't get bored and the students who didn't prepare enough uh, although there's methods you can use to get more preparedness but the students who are at that lower level don't get lost.
1: One of the other things that fascinated me about reading uh, your paper uh, on active learning was just the, the scale of the changes that were implemented you know, across a, a university almost and across courses and so what were some of the challenges and and wins that were associated with uh, implementing uh, more active learning at a university level?
2: Okay so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the balance of research and education for an academic is, is a challenge. Uh, that, we we had a great win early on with our Dean and our faculty executive right behind us, facilitating us, providing us with funding where, where it was required, um, staffing support. You know, we really had buy-in from the top and that helped a lot to say to the academic staff, we are going after education excellence, seriously, across the board. And I think a key distinction was to move beyond we're happy if we've got a core group of excellent educators and everyone else can do what they like, to, no, we have, you know, we're going to expect different things of different people, our education-focused staff, we have academic staff who are education-focused, and we'll expect more of them than someone who's got five NHNRC grants. But everybody, there is a base level of evidence-based teaching that we want everyone to do. That came from the top, An early win or a series of early wins was classes where people were just enjoying it a whole lot. The academic staff were coming out of classes, you know, feeling without, you know, without exaggerating, feeling that night that they had a sense of achievement that they hadn't felt for years, you know, and that they never got from a didactic lecture where it was all about, feel like, did I tell a good joke or explain things nicely? You know, they were hearing students and getting in students' heads and hearing what's You know, seeing the learning process uh, right in front of them—that's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's really powerful, and it it speaks to people more than anything we can say. You know, their lived experience is really what's going to guide what they do next. I think. So I guess there's some of the early wins. Uh,
1: I suppose as well, one of the one of the things that keeps cropping up in the podcast, and certainly in a lot of the conversations I've had between you know, educational researchers and psychology researchers uh, is this translation issue of uh, translating the evidence about how people learn and think they learn into a classroom setting and you seem to have achieved that on a large scale uh, and so can you give us a sense of, of whether whether or not you found it you know fairly easy to, to translate evidence into practice or what your process was in translating that evidence into practice practice
2: that's a great question we Started off with finding the evidence that closest, most closely matched our context. So it was incredibly helpful uh, to have connections to some people who, who made that evidence or generated that evidence. Uh, so we had already, you know, our, our group of education-focused uh, people had some connections with people from outside. So there was a guy from McMaster University, PK Rangachari, who came in, you know, and he'd done some of the papers that we were talking about. And they were in pharmacology, so they're close enough for people to say, that's our discipline, it's not something foreign to us, so it might work for us. But that's a key thing that academics say, and I don't really agree. I mean, I sometimes heard, you know, chemists or mathematicians say, active learning doesn't work for me but some of the best examples in the world are from chemistry. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that's, that's a falsehood, but it, it definitely helps yeah. to have someone close to your area saying, I've tried this in a similar context, and the things mm-hmm. that you're worried about are not really big problems. Yeah. I think that's one point. And the second point is we started generating the evidence. Yeah. First, we had to learn a bit about educational research, it's very different to my background in cardiovascular pharmacology and other people's chemistry research. But we started generating our own evidence. What's totally abundantly clear in our context is that students that prepare for classes do better on a whole range of assessments. Students that turn up to class and engage in active learning do much better than students who don't. You know, the evidence is crystal clear.
0: It it, it sounds like an interesting mix of places where you've where you've been able to get this evidence from. And I guess Part of it is about this credibility gap, and it sounds like this was a really important um, example of this in your case, that you've got somebody who's tried a similar thing to what you are doing in a very closely related discipline, which I guess is a, is a much easier step for people to take if they're new to this than if to say, you know, classic examples of saying um, people who have got, you know, neuroimaging studies or really, you know, lab-based stuff and saying, oh, look at all this great stuff, and it's like, well, hold on a second, how does, how does this actually apply to me in practice? So it, it sounds like a really great way of being able to connect the dots um, in a way that people can actually understand what it might look like in their context. I also thought it was interesting that you're talking about collecting some of that evidence yourself. So um, did you have a particular way of thinking about the education research when you did that? Was there sort of a, a particular paradigm or something? Because we know that there's lots of different ways that you could think about what learning and, and everything looks like. What, what was the sort of entry point? Given that, you know, for a lot of people who might be listening to this, they might be thinking about taking that similar journey. Well, it it can seem a bit overwhelming to enter into this new area of research that is quite different from your own. How did you find your way into that?
2: That's a great question. We look at, um, at, from our discipline-based research, we tend to look for controlled studies you know, almost the randomised clinical trial. And when we came to educational research, most of us were lost because that's very difficult to do. You can do it, but in very small contexts, I think. So we were kind of lost. And then what we did, which is what often people do, is we intervene, we do something, and we ask the students if they liked it. And then we said, well, we're not very satisfied with that. So, So the question is then what to do. And I think really where we've come to is triangulation. We're trying to get at what was the impact of the teaching approach that we used on the students' learning and what they can display, what they can, behavioural outcomes they, they can show. And so we needed to get the student voice in that, but we needed to ask students very specific questions, not did you like it, not was it... You know, we want to know if it's a good experience, but we need to go beyond that to say if we were trying to... Uh, develop their critical thinking, to ask specific questions, A, about what their perception of that was, but also questions that tried to reveal the processes that they use when they thought about things. So to try and get the qualitative data, the student voice, to say very specifically what it was about what we tried that worked and didn't work. We definitely use student performance in assessments, whether they're assessments in a class, You know, we tried something in an active learning class and we collect the the student submissions and mark those. So we use that as a gauge of immediate learning and then we look at their exam performance and we're we're quantitative people. So we want to see a bang for our buck in terms of student marks. Uh, We want to see the formal student evaluations go up and we also think that the view of our peers is really critical because one thing about active learning is you can use a, a schema where you say, you know, this active learning approach... Um, was a synthesis task. It asked the students to synthesise, you know, collect their knowledge and and crystallise it into something meaningful. But the task itself is important. Are we getting them to do something that matters, that matters to, is it an authentic task? Would it it be something that a pharmacist might actually come across in their practice? Or is it something that's abstract that the academic really came up with, you know, last night? So the peer view, I think, is really the academic peer view to say, Yes, I validate that this is something that would be useful to students and that would help them towards their authentic practice, you know, down the track. So, uh, you know, trying to sort of condense that down, I think it's it's triangulating, it's triangulating what the students' perception is, what they can do, and also what you know what the peers think about what that means for the longer term. Yeah.
0: I like that idea Absolutely. of triangulation. I think that, yeah. that's great.
1: Absolutely, seeing what bubbles to the surface across each of those different metrics. I'm curious though. Do you um, do you give students a sense of what works and what doesn't before they uh, embark on their studies? So, so are they aware of of the research uh, and evidence base you're drawing on um, to design your curriculum before before they undergo their studies?
2: Yes, we have a session for both of our undergraduate courses in orientation week of first year. It's always tricky because I don't think they take much out of that necessarily because they're so focused on meeting new friends and all that sort of thing. So we try to come back to it as well. But yes, absolutely. We present our own evidence and some of the evidence from the literature to say, look, we know you have your own learning preferences and styles, maybe. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we do it. Here's the evidence. Here's what we're trying to achieve in the longer term. And there's sometimes some cognitive dissonance, I think, on that, because students have this history, depending on the, the experience they had at school, they have a history of learning a particular way, or and they, they often think that, you know, i had a student in second year say, it's a bit late to try and teach me how to think. <laughs> you know, I learned that at school. And, you know, it took us a long time in the conversation to get to the point where she could say, oh, okay, you know, maybe... Maybe there's steps and maybe I'm somewhere along the way and maybe, you know, if Paul's saying to me, you know, at 46 years of age, he's still learning a whole lot of new things about how to do activities and teaching and research, that maybe it's a long game rather than something that's over and done with by 16 or 17.
0: I think that's a really interesting point because it goes back to what you were talking about before where a lot of them initially thought that the lecture was going to be the most effective way for them to learn. So there's, there's something about all of this which is about change, almost changing the culture, the learning culture, right from the, from the ground up. You know, you might be f- familiar with doing something in this particular way, but the evidence sort of suggests that this is probably not the most effective way to do it. Um, I think there's something really critical in that. Uh, and I know from my own experience where I've tried to do similar things with third years is that by that point they've been at university for a couple of years and they would really figured out how to play the game. You know, it was lectures and it was tutorials and it was occasionally lab classes. They knew what the structure was like, they knew how to figure out what to get out of that so that they could, you know, do the assessment and, and move on. So so trying to change that at that point was really challenging. So I, I took a very similar approach where I spent quite a bit of time saying, look, this is what we understand about effective learning. This is why we're doing it the way that we're doing it in this subject. Um, and therefore, you know, the reasons why you're going to do these activities will hopefully lead to you to get these outcomes. So, you know, really playing on that sense of the, the purpose of why the, the activities were important, I think, was, um, was something that hopefully, and you're not going to get all of them, right? So Yes. But, you know, hopefully it's something that will get most of them on board to think, oh, right, so there's actually good reason and evidence by why you're going to do this differently, okay? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So learning how to learn as opposed to what to learn. Yes,
0: yes. And
2: and having some built-in time for reflection about learning has actually been really valuable. Sometimes a 10-minute conversation about that can mean a much better experience for the students and they'll buy in. You know part of it is a leg of faith on their part the concept mapping can I use that as an example sure. concept mapping uh, is something where a proportion of the students will always say I- I'm not a visual learner uh, you know I-, I don't learn that way so concept mapping is where you, you draw a map to show the relationship between different um, elements within a, a framework and it's a leap of faith for students to, to draw one. We get students to draw one. There's always that challenge of uh, getting them to buy in enough to, to invest the time. You know, From their point, they're, they're investing you know, maybe half an hour to draw this thing. And if they have enough good experience previously, they will do that. I think they'll take that leap of faith and say, all right, I'll go with you. I'll, I'm gonna tell you at the end whether I like it or not, but I'll go with you on that journey. If they haven't had such a good experience, they'll, they'll opt out. So it, it really is, you know, there's a culture of learning that we're trying to develop, and we haven't certainly haven't got this perfect by any means, but it's that consistency of approach, consistency of philosophy, and their, their experience of whether it works or not that matters, I
1: think. I suppose a part of the, the battle is that concept mapping in all of these active learning strategies often require a fair amount of effort on the part of the learner. Um, and so perhaps simply telling students that this is going to result in you being able to use this information more effectively when you leave university might not be enough for them to want to go through that struggle. And so that, that's where all of that triangulation comes in, you know, the other strategies that you're, you're using um, to, to up a student's interest could come into play. Yes, so.
2: yeah, that's right. You, you can make them aspire to be a great graduate yeah. only so much. Yep. Yes, and, and you need to be able to say, yes, this is going to help you get good marks, if that's what you value, if, if you're here to get a high distinction, or if you're, you're here to pass, this will help you pass. And you can trust me to,
0: to believe that. Yeah. I guess the other side of this, if we flip it back over, is to think about what this means from the staff perspective. So you said in, in some of the things that you've written that you came across some resistance from some of your colleagues. Did you find that that similar approach of being able to actually draw on the evidence and, and make that case to them was effective or was there something else that, that was important? So you've already talked about the, the support of the, the senior executive. Now, obviously, that's going to be an element. Did, did your colleagues who were resistant find the evidence compelling when you started to say, well, look, this is this actually seems to be working? Was that a big part of it?
2: There are some who, who today will still say that the evidence is not evidence of a type that they value. They still want the randomised clinical trial. Uh, most, I think most of our academic staff now would say that the evidence that we got, particularly in our context, and also there's a, a, a meta-analysis that um, is a, a paper by Freeman et al. from uh, University of Washington, that is kind of what the evidence they are looking for is like. And so when that came out in 2014, we used that a lot because it's a meta-analysis of many, many studies that showed really... I think there's a comment in the paper that if this was a clinical trial, it would be stopped because it's unethical to keep doing tradi- traditional <laughs> learning. You know, we, and and people, that resonates with our people who think about patients and medicines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are still staff who, who think the evidence is, you know, that, that qualitative and educational research is rubbish, but they're, they're in the minority, I, I think. It, it has been an effective and a necessary part of our approach. Yeah.
1: I suppose a part of the problem there is that if you do want the randomized control trial kind of evidence, then you need to strip away the context. Well, at least you're stripping away more and more bits of the context to get more and more control. Um, and so it's, it seems like people just sit at different ends of that spectrum of really controlled, um, you know, uh, less like real life all the way through to qualitative, this is what it's looking like in this particular class at this particular time.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you've articulated the the challenge of getting that balance right so that that you can't really get the perfect uh, randomised clinical trial for education. You can have a small-scale, quite controlled study in, in an educational context, but like you say, it's not the real thing. As soon as you start assigning people to one group or one treatment, or another, it's it's not the real thing, and like you say, backing it up with qualitative stuff. I, th- I think I've really personally had a, a transformation of the, the the view about rigor in qualitative research, and that you can have fantastic rigor, really compelling if you do it carefully. If you get good interrater reliability on on a construct, you can really get to some something deeper. The other thing we've tried to stress is that you can't, you can't really understand why something worked when you do a randomised clinical trial, a randomised trial in, in education. As soon as you start controlling the variables, you're really looking for, did this work? And you can get some sense of the mechanics of how it worked. But the qualitative data is absolutely essential to know why did it work what resonated with the students, what approaches, you know, in the problem-solving schema, what actually did they use? And did they actually use the schema that you presented or they, did they develop something on, on, in their own right? And what we found when we did that investigation was that there are a mix. And some students will dutifully follow exactly what you did and then accept it or reject it. And others, you know, who were kind of rebels and uh, like to be more experimental will, from day one, just ignore completely what you did. But maybe they'll try their own schema, whereas before they wouldn't have thought about that. You know, students, I don't think we as humans naturally reflect as we go without prompting. And that's a a key part of what we try to do.
0: And I guess that that partly also came out when you were talking about... um... In some of your work about how the the academics that you were working with had this kind of intuitive sense of their own teaching that they didn't necessarily think in a very structured way about what was working what wasn't and how to unpack it and change it around so it's kind of interesting that there's a there there's a seems to be a bit of a parallel there as well
2: yeah and that you know the special source for the student is, is an equivalent for the academic if you're doing a think pair share and you, you know you're doing a cookie cutter approach every time it does become less engaging. And where academics bring their own personality into things that are well-designed, I think it's the combination of good design and bringing your own sense of commitment to it and personality and fun and humour, that's where you get the magic happening.
1: You talked a, a little bit about constructive alignment in the, that, that paper as well, so aligning your learning activities um, with your assessment and with your learning outcomes. And so can you share a little bit of your experience with making the assessment in particular um, more alignable with, with the active learning uh, strategies that you're using in the classroom?
2: Yes, that's a, a big one to unpack. Uh... It goes back to... The the need to do it goes back to the issue of student goals and academic learning outcomes and making sure they're consistent. What the student wants to achieve from this block of teaching and what the the academic wants the the students to display. Uh, So getting the learning outcomes to be a clear description of what students need to be able to do and specific enough for them to make sense of it is really important. And when we did the active learning intervention, we really saw that the active learning in class probably shifted first. You know, the explicit learning outcomes came along, but, um, and ideally, you know, it would have come along at the start. But that the, we focused on active learning to try and get that shift in the classroom. And because the academics were designing these activities that were more analysis, more evaluation, and more, you know, apply your knowledge, they wrote exam questions like that. They started to write more exam questions that were like that. And we had some granularity, we had some turbulence there. You know, sometimes we write exam questions where the students haven't had enough practice at those different sorts of questions. Past exam databases were really problematic because the students use those and they trust those as something that has been used as an official examination and when you're trying to say to the students, this new exam is going to look different to those old ones, you know some of them don't believe you. So we had some, some issues, I think around 2014, where we had to really say, hang on, let's have some sessions where we talk about constructive alignment. We go back to our learning outcomes. We make sure that we don't have a knowledge comprehension outcome in the learning outcomes and then give them a new situation in the exam. Or do an oski, or do you know clinical examination under observation. So that we had to do a mid-course correction, if you like, yeah. to really make sure that whilst active learning was kind of the focus, actually what we're trying to do was lift the learning outcomes, lift the, make sure that the teaching and learning activities were directly helpful. In students achieving those learning outcomes and that the assessment assess those exact learning outcomes. Yeah
1: exactly so if you were to use a concept mapping strategy in your class what kinds of questions would you ask on an exam that um, that help them apply that that strategy or, or that activity?
2: Yeah it's a good question so sometimes what we did was get them to draw the concept map, map in the exam mm-hmm. and I think that was useful <coughs> Even more useful, though, was to say, using your concept map, reflect on the key relationships that occur in blood pressure control. So, yes, the concept maps by themselves are useful, but really they're a means to an end. And that end is have a conceptual framework or a way of thinking about this particular topic that you can use as your cornerstone. Yeah. I mean, really, that's, that's, I think, the beauty of concept mapping is I, I've had students, you know, I go into pharmacies where I see graduates from years gone by, and some of them say, you know, that bloody concept map,
0: <laughs> it killed me to
2: make it, but I still think about it, you know. And when I'm dispensing medicines that are for blood pressure or heart failure, you know, that I have that thing in my mind that explains what's going on.
1: Yeah, that's really excellent. Uh, I, this is more of a blue sky question, but as you were talking about constructive alignment, I also uh, was thinking back to the thing you mentioned about having momentum in a class, and I just wanted to you know get a sense of what your hunch is about why that works or why it's important to have um, you, know, con- you know consistency at a course level, but also within you know any one class that you run with one group of students. That idea of momentum.
2: Yeah. So I think that because humans, you know, we're social creatures and we,
1: you know, we follow
2: trends and and if if we're sitting in a classroom where there's a hum of conversation, the likelihood that if I'm not buying in, I will because I hear everyone else and I hear good conversations, you know, I think that generates more discussion and more people buying in and the converse applies that if there's a task and everyone's sitting back looking at each other in bewilderment mm. that I'm less likely to do it uh, so I think there is it, it's the it's you know we're, we're not sheep
1: yeah
2: you know but we do follow each other a bit and, and things can can build within a within a class
1: yeah and do you find as well that because of that if you one activity can work w- really well with one group of students but then fall flat with the next or
2: yeah absolutely and it's frustrating you know for I think of my colleagues who are you know the best educators in our faculty and and they they can have a pretty consistent experience um, but for some of us you know yes you can try the same thing and it might be how you got up that this that morning yeah you know how you felt when you got up and, and the uh, it might be what you have for breakfast or whatever, but it, it's or it might be the students. You know, they had. Sometimes it's that the students have got an exam that day, and that their attention is really not on what what your attention is. And I think that comes back to the cues. You know, really good educators can be consistently successful because they're picking up all these cues. And if if I you know if I see an activity that I would normally expect to work really well falling down in a heap, I will sometimes stop and say, okay, let's stop, time out. Let's work out what's going on here. Yep. I think those sorts of things are how you get to be a consistent educator, and how the students can respond consistently because you are responding to their, um, you know, how they're feeling and how they're interacting. Yep. Hmm.
0: So. Yeah, those are really good ideas. Um, so one thing we always like to do before we wrap this up is to um, get a sense from you about where to next. You know, what are you excited about? What's <laughs> what's on the horizon? Um, where, where does this go from here?
2: That's a good one. So we have uh, moved another stage along in our faculty-wide approach. So the active learning approach was across both our undergraduate programs. And what we're now doing is focusing more specifically on each program individually. So in our new integrated master's, so we have a pharmacy vertical integrated master's where they do a bachelor's degree and then a a one-year master's. We have a first year where we have a model of... Um, that's been developed by our leaders in that program to say to each student for each unit, each, each course of study for the, for the year, you will have two hours of preparation, two hours of large class active learning, and two hours of workshop. And we have within those within that framework, we have notions of what's gonna happen. So in our discovery phase, the two hours of preparation, we say we're gonna give you the key terminology the language of this topic and the key concepts and you're going to turn up to class with some sense of those things and then in classes we're going to do active learning as, as we've been doing since 2012 and then in the in the workshops we're really going to focus on long scenarios kind of longer cases where you really deep dive into a particular case and that reveals you know kind of grabbing some of the best bits about problem-based learning and using them in, in a construct where you're preparing and then doing large classes and then small classes. So I guess where we're heading is trying to design a teaching approach where we have a consistent framework and then we encourage our academics to really be creative and exciting and interesting within that framework and we're getting more specific. And we're trying to go from complete autonomy of academics You know, which is the old model. You do, you know, you're given here's six lectures. Do whatever you think (laughs) to something where we have a structure, you know, an organisation and some pedagogy underlying that. But each academic really brings their own flavour to it.
0: Sounds interesting.
2: Would
1: you uh, would you describe it as a uh, a teaching philosophy, but not just for an individual academic, for for you know a cohort of academics?
2: It is very much. We know that each academic will have their own take on that philosophy, but we try to as much as we can articulate and write down what the philosophy is so that when even we sort of drift a little bit, we can come back, what are our core values here? What are we really trying to do? And what we're trying to do is develop students who graduate with really deep knowledge that they can apply to any situation using the skills, the interpersonal skills and the thinking skills that they've developed with us.
0: Sounds great. So where can people find out more about your work? Have you got a website? Is, is there somewhere you can point people to? A Twitter page or anything like that?
2: Uh, we do. So we have uh, our faculty website, so the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. If you Google that, you'll find our faculty website and we have Facebook and other resources. Uh, yeah, we, we're happy to share and very happy to discuss. One thing that we know is we've, we've learned a lot by our failures and our successes. And we really think that we need to share both of those to, to have an honest conversation about this stuff.
1: Some fantastic examples. Thank you so much for having a conversation with us.
0: Thanks, Thanks. i cool. enjoyed it. Cheers.